Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 9, sorry, verses 10 through verses 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can it be its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing this morning in our study of the gospel of Matthew, and within that gospel, our study of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sat among his disciples to teach them during his ministry in and around Galilee. Recall that Jesus began this section of teaching with a series of eight Beatitudes, eight pronouncements of blessings for those who had embraced the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the reign of God that it represents. These eight statements revealed the heart and the actions of someone who understood that man's condition before a holy God and someone who had trusted in the son's offer of salvation and had followed him in faith and obedience. The person who understood their need and accepted the call to follow Christ They embraced a radically different lifestyle, a radically different motivation than the world around them had. Simply put, they stood out. The ethic of Christ's kingdom is not merely a little different or a little stricter than that of the pagan world or even that of the Jewish nation of that day. Welcoming the kingdom of heaven and the reign of God that it represents required a complete, a radical paradigm shift. A shift of everything that that person had believed and had been taught. This was true both to the Jews, to whom this message first went out, and later to the Greek and the barbarian. Remember, the life that Jesus called his disciples to was seen as weakness and foolishness to the ungodly and unrepentant. What the world celebrated in man, Christ called on his disciples to crucify. And there's no doubt about it, the Christian life is a radical life. Obedience to Christ does not simply require some small adjustment from the worldly system. It requires a new heart, a new nature. It requires life from death. Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. 
Yet the peace that his followers enjoyed would not translate to a peace between them and the world. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In this ungodly world, there is a cost to being at peace with God. Conflict with the world is unavoidable for those who are in Christ. Yet even though it can and it will draw persecution upon the believer, Christians are called to remain involved in the world. Just because it puts us at odds with the world doesn't mean that we can escape it. Christians are not meant to try and escape the world. As one commentator put it, neither the indistinguishably assimilated nor the inaccessible hermit fulfill the mandate of Christ for his disciples. You cannot walk in obedience to the commands of Christ by looking just like the world, nor can you walk in obedience to the commands of Christ by separating yourself completely from the world and having no contact with it. Being faithful to the call of Christ, even for those of us who were blessed enough to be raised in Christian homes, is difficult. So much the more so for those who are called out of ungodly and unbelieving homes and communities when they accept the radical call and embrace the kingdom of Christ. So that's exactly what the Jewish believers of the first century, century faced when they chose to follow Jesus when he walked on this earth. Their families often turned against them their own family members becoming their enemies, delivering them over to be killed for their belief. Jesus was not exaggerating when he said that he came to bring the sword and then a man would turn against his father, a daughter, her mother. The promises of persecution in verses 11 and 12 that we looked at last week and the metaphors in our passages to our passage today embody two distinct features of the disciple of Christ. On the one hand, they are radically different. They are called out from, they are separate from those around them. They are marked by a nature that is contrary to the systems of this world. On the other hand, even though they are different and radically so, God has called them to remain in the world. God has commanded his church to be seen by the world. And in so being seen to attract persecution. Because God intends that his people will be noticed. He intends that his people will leave a mark on the world. Well, Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Well, in the ancient world, among a whole host of other uses, salt was primarily used for seasoning and preserving food. 
Salt made food more pleasurable. Eating was more of a pleasure because it enhanced flavor. It made eating safer because salt would draw the excess moisture out of food and it would slow down the process of decay. Of course, it serves both of these purposes today. Yet we tend to really only appreciate the way that salt adds taste to our food. Yet in the ancient world, before refrigeration, before modern canning, salt was crucial in warding off rot and decay and the waste of the much-needed and often in short-supplied food. So what did Jesus mean when he told his disciples that they were the salt of the earth? Well, like salt does for food, the disciples were to provide flavor for the world and to help hold off and delay its corruption. According to Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, if it is only those who have by faith been united to Christ that are able to please God, then as Christians fulfill the Great Commission, as we go out and we make disciples of all the tribes and tongues and nations, then we are giving flavor to the world. In bringing more people to Christ, more people into the kingdom of heaven, Christians are making the world more pleasing to God, a more soothing aroma to God, more savory to God. So they make the world around them more pleasing to God by means of making disciples. And they also, by being active in society, serve to preserve what is good and decent and to slow down decay and corruption. Wherever God's people gain influence, they take dominion over the curse of death and they build communities and institutions that allow for human flourishing. Christians affect the world around them for good. Be that in their own home, be that in their churches, in their communities, or in the building of nations. The stabilizing presence of Christians is felt. 20th century theologian A.W. Pink said salt is an indispensable necessity of life. It is God's great antiseptic in a sphere of decay. It is wrought into the very rocks and soil of the earth so that the waters filtering through them become purified thereby. It is a necessary element of the blood, which is the life of our bodies. How well suited then it is as a figure of the truth by which means the soul is sanctified. For as salt arrests natural corruption, so the word of God militates against moral corruption. The Christian acts as salt in this word, both by declaring the word of God, by sharing the good news with the lost around them, by trying to draw people into Christ, and by living obedient lives. Lives that are clearly marked by the attributes that we just studied in the Beatitudes. Beloved, we must do both. We must live lives that present a clear testimony of the faithfulness of God 
and we must proclaim the word of God. We cannot rely on just one or the other. You have probably heard the maxim, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. It looks really good on a pillow. But that maxim makes about as much sense as feed the hungry, use food if necessary, or take a shower, use water if necessary. Upon any level of inspection, it is a nonsense statement. If we rely on our actions alone to show the victory of Christ in our lives and the power of gospel over sin, then our lack of words will prevent our actions from actually pointing anyone to Christ. It certainly does not give the lost what they need to be saved. Sure, men might marvel and wonder that we are different, yet if we don't tell them why, then they will fail to give glory to God. If we don't point them by our speech to the wonders of God who has changed us, who has changed our nature, who has given us new hearts, who has brought us to life out of death, then all we are doing is claiming fame for ourselves and robbing it from God. Likewise, if we rely on our words alone and our lives are inconsistent with the message we proclaim, then the failures in our lifestyle will convince be convinced, will convince the world that our words are meaningless. Our failure to live what we preach broadcast to everybody with eyes that what we preach has no power, that there is nothing real and solid behind it. Few things to make acceptance of the gospel more difficult for the unbeliever than the message being pushed by people who don't live like it makes any difference in their lives. Jesus declared his disciples are to be salt in the world. After the promise of persecution and insults that await all those who are called by his name, it should not surprise us that the world does not want to be salted. Just as the one who wrestles with a pig in the mud will soon find that the pig is actually enjoying it, so will the one who points out the sinfulness of the worldly find that the unbelieving world actually love their sin. They love the filth and the muck that they roam around in. And sadly, all too often, you will find a similar response when you point out sin in the lives of those who profess the name of Christ. Yet that not ever be so. The effect of the disciple salt is to make the world more pleasing to God. Remember we said salt has the effect of, of adding more pleasure in the eating, making it more pleasing. So the effect of the Christians as salt in the earth is to make the earth more pleasing to God, not to be more pleasing to the world. Certainly not to the, be more pleasing to those who are opposed to God. There's something that we need to realize about salt. Salt will bite. You ever heard of the expression, salt in the wound? Well, if you've ever felt salt on an open wound, you know just how, how much salt bites, how much it, it hurts and it stings. 
Remember that apart from Christ, the carnal man is essentially one big open wound, torn apart, destroyed by sin. It is no surprise that the ungodly will cringe and fight against the salt that finds out the wound and searches its corruption. Remember, it is not sugar or honey that we are to the world, but salt. And the ungodly are much more likely to spit out our words, to spit out our actions, than they are to savor and desire. So Christians are the salt of this earth. And that should be especially prevalent from the pulpits of our churches. And how sad it is in the state of churches in this nation that most preachers are more concerned with the approval of men and then they sprinkle sugar into the cavity of the mouths rather than giving salt that holds back the decay of our society. Too many churches avoid momentary discomfort in this life at the cost of eternity for those who hear and have their ears scratched. How different things might be in this land even today if churches had stayed faithful to the word, had embraced their role as salt in preserving what is good and holy rather than raced one another and tripped over themselves to become more acceptable by the world. Well, after telling his disciples that they were the salt in the world, Jesus continued with a warning. If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, unsalty salt seems like very much a contradiction of terms. By its nature, if something is not salty, it can't be salt. Well, in the ancient world, salt was very seldom pure. It was harvested in such a way that it always contained a, a, a percentage of impurities and other minerals. And in that, in that concoction, that combination of salt and mineral and impurity, it was possible over time for the salt to actually leach out and therefore, what was once called salt would no longer be salty. Without proper care, the usefulness of salt would be lost, and what remained would be worthless. The Greek verb translated here as lost its taste, moreno, is found four times in the New Testament. Two times it refers to salt, and two other times it carries the more common meaning of to make or become foolish. So those who call themselves Christians, yet who offer no godly savor, are simply making fools of themselves. They mock the name of Christ rather than proclaim his rule over all things. If the Jesus' disciples are to flavor this world if they are to act as, as a preservative of goodness, they must retain their virtue. True saltiness cannot lose, true salt cannot lose its saltiness 
Yet the impurities and other minerals hidden among the salt can be exposed for the foolishness they are. Reminds me of the warnings in Hebrews 6. For all those who appeared to be true believers, who were among the church, who appeared to have the things of God, yet who had fallen away. Those who had exposed the deception of their claim. When Jesus said when then when the salt had lost its saltiness, it was good for nothing but being trampled under the feet of men. The warning for the unsalty salt is of judgment and destruction. The imagery of being trampled underfoot is a fairly common picture for utter destruction. For these early believers, it was a clear warning that when we look back, we can see that within a generation of these early believers, those who did not remain with Christ, those who had rejected him, who were not salt in the world, were indeed destroyed and trampled underfoot. The warning is no less real for us today. The danger remains. If we give in to worldly thinking and to ungodly living, we will become useless and we will face judgment. Beloved, God is not mocked. It is a fearful thing to claim the name of God in vain. Of course, Jesus is not making the claim that true salt can somehow turn into waste but simply that that which only pretends to be salt will be exposed. No true believer, no genuine disciple of Christ will lose their salvation. So the extension of the metaphor is that it's the foolishness of the pretender that will be found out. And judgment will follow those who are not in Christ, even though they may have claimed to be in this life. The warning for those who claim to be in Christ is that the continued saltiness of our lives will prove if we are salt or if we are just foreign minerals and impurities that will ultimately be cast aside. And just as the call of Christ brings the hope of salvation, it also carries the certainty of judgment for all who do not follow and believe. After warning his disciples of the consequences of losing their saltiness, Jesus gave another metaphor to explain their role in the world. He said, you are the light of the world. But what is this light that believers are to be in the world? When we look back to John 1, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This light that Jesus is, or that John was speaking of in that passage, is Jesus. So the light that Christ says that we are in the world is the light of the reign of Jesus. It is the light of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told his disciples that they and everybody who would follow in obedience after them were the light of the world. 
And it was his light that they were to display. It was his righteousness, his beauty, his glory, and his loving kindness. The world desperately needs the light, and it is through his followers that his light shines. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter tells us that the world is in spiritual darkness. As believers, we have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Remember what Matthew wrote as Jesus returned to Galilee after being baptized by John the Baptist. Matthew 4.16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Because of sin, mankind is perpetually in spiritual blindness. Mankind, apart from Christ, are in complete darkness. It is the mission of the disciple as they proclaim the good news of Christ and live in obedience to his call to shine light into that darkness. When Paul stood before Agrippa, he recounted the words of Jesus when he encountered him on the road to Damascus. When Jesus had told Paul that he was appointed as a minister to the Gentiles in order to open their eyes, that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. By proclaiming the word of God, the follower of Christ seeks to transfer the sinners from the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, to the dominion of God in light, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. To further make this point, Jesus moved on to say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. When the ancient world, cities were often built on a hill, built on high ground, where they could be easily fortified, where they could have easy lines of sight to see any enemy that might come against them. In Palestine, they were often built of white limestone. And as such, they often gleamed, shone brightly, and stood out plainly in the countryside. And at night, the lights of the homes within the city and all the buildings of the town could be seen even at a great distance as their combined light appeared to be one single bright glow from afar. So the city in this, in this period of time was easily seen both in the daytime and in the dark of night. Even if it was desired, there was no way for a city on a hill to be hidden. While it might be possible for the world to hide or even snuff out the light of an individual, the combined light of the people of God is impossible to defeat. Its source is Christ, and he has overcome the world. Though persecution, through persecution, the world has long tried to diminish and defeat the light of the church. Yet, the light of the church has consistently grown brighter in the face of trial. The light of the church has often been brightened not extinguished by the blood of the martyrs. We can see this today 
as the church flourishes and the gospel grows and goes out and changes lives in churches under great oppression. You can see this in China, that the communist government there has been powerless to stop the Christian church. There are believers who are flourishing, even when they take and throw their leaders into prison. More recently, we have seen this in Afghanistan when the U.S. left and the Taliban once again took over, even as they sought to stamp out any crushed Christian presence, the churches grow. The faithfulness of God's people shines and God uses it to draw people in. Try as they might, the ungodly cannot put out the light of Christ. The darker that a society becomes, simply magnifies the brightness of the light of Christ. Well, Jesus continued speaking of light. He said, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the all in the house. Well, in these two different pictures of light and these metaphors, Jesus is explaining that the light in his disciples is not meant to be hidden, that it in fact cannot be hidden. The light that is present in the disciples, the light of Christ that shines through them was designed for the very purpose of being displayed. God did not give the light of Christ to Christians so that they can hide from the world behind the walls of their home or that they can hide from the world behind the walls of their churches. Of course, it is completely absurd to think that somebody would go to all the trouble of lighting a lamp, consuming costly fuel, only to then hide the lamp under a container so that nobody could see its lights. The very purpose of lighting the lamp is so that it will give off light, that those who are near it will clearly see in the darkness around them. If someone lights a lamp, it is because they have a purpose for it. They desire to expose what would otherwise remain unseen, and the light fills the room. We all know that darkness breeds fear and confusion, while light brings understanding and chases away fear as what is unknown is made known. If you desire darkness to remain in a room, then you would not light a lamp in the first place. By lighting a lamp and placing it on its stand, you are ensuring that it will give as much light out as possible. Again, the purpose of the lamp is to give off light so that men might see. Likewise, the purpose of the church on this earth is to display the light of Christ that men might believe and give glory to God. The Father sent his Son, the light of the world, to this earth for a purpose. The Son then gives His Spirit to those whom He calls, who trust in Him, and He gives the Spirit to them for a purpose. It is God's intention that His people will be seen by the world. Jesus not only named His followers the light of the world, He told them the reason for the light that they display. He said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So the metaphor of light is more clearly explained. These good works that the disciples do in accordance with the character that was described already for us in the Beatitudes, these good works are the lights that they are to display. These good works are the clear testimony that all the world will see and give glory to God. Their changed characters, their changed actions prove the power of the message that they proclaim. The righteous life that flows out from their new nature obtained in the new birth is so evident in the Christian's life that the world will see their good works. And as they hear for the reason that these Christians live differently, when they hear us give the response for why we are different from the world, from why we do things differently, they will give credit to God. It is only when the new nature of the believer is on clear display that the work of God in their lives will have the desired effect of giving glory to God. We cannot simply be different and hide in our basements and expect God to receive the glory for what he has done. The goal of the disciple is not merely to cause others to emulate our lifestyle. It is to live so that the world recognizes that God is the source of our changed lives, that God is the source of our good works and our good nature. The point of being made light is so that people will see that they will see the light of the righteousness of God in display in his people. This light will expose what is in the darkness and it will inevitably bring persecution. It will inevitably bring insults and conflict as the light of the gospel within us exposes the wickedness in the world. Yet that does not change the purpose of the light. Even if it brings conflict, even when it causes us trouble, The purpose of the light is that others may see and so that God may be glorified on this earth. After all, bringing glory and honor and praise to God is the true heart and driving passion of all of God's children. It is only those who are in Christ who can call God Father. And just as it was with Jesus, as he perfectly modeled for us in his life on this earth, the desire of all of God's children is to do the will of the Father and to see the name of God praised among the nations. Have you ever wondered why God leaves people on this earth after he saves them? Why doesn't God just simply, when he saves somebody, simply just whisk them to heaven, simply take them away from all the trials and the heartaches and the suffering of this world? Wouldn't it be easier than leaving us here to suffer and to be tempted? In this passage, Jesus gives us an answer to that question. An answer is, in fact, fairly common in the New Testament. 
See, if it was God's intention only for us to escape hell, then it might make sense that he would immediately take us to paradise after saving us. Yet the Bible tells us we are saved for the glory and the pleasure of God, according to his abundant loving kindness. So we are saved and left on this earth, knowing that we will face trial, we will face persecution, we will face temptation and suffering, because it is God's desire to display his own glory through the good works of those he has called. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus about their salvation, he told them in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul wanted them to clearly understand that their salvation was all of God, that it was not of anything that they could do, Yet he also wanted them to know that they're being new, being made a new creation in Christ, carried with it the intention of good works that we would perform. We were saved with a purpose. Peter wrote the believers were to live righteous lives in order that the world may see and God will be glorified. First Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Later in the letter, in the letter Peter wrote the believers, because of their distinct and righteous lives, ought to be prepared to be noticed and questioned by those to whom we seem peculiar. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Beloved, our calling is not to live righteously in isolation, but rather to be so conformed to the image of Christ that the world takes notice. And whether they bless us or curse us for it, God is ultimately, glor ultimately glorified as people see Christ in his people. Well, if the verses 11 and 12 that we looked at last week recounted the normalcy of Christians being persecuted, as the faithful have always been persecuted, both by the unrighteous outside the church and the pretenders and hypocrites inside, then the verses 13 through 16 tell us why they are persecuted. They are persecuted because they have been made to be clearly put on display in a world that hated and killed the very man that the Christian is called to emulate. God has ordained that those he saved will be clearly evident in society. They are to display his nature and his glory in a fallen world. They will be salt to flavor and preserve, and they will be light to shine in the darkness. If you are a Christian, then you were saved with the intention of being put on display. You were saved to be a living testament to the grace, the mercy, the love, and the power of God. 
as salt, Christians delay the decay in the world. Any lack of saltiness serves as a warning for those who make fools of themselves pretending before God while being conformed to the world. As light, Christians illuminate a sin-darkened world and shine as a testament to the character of God. When Paul exhorted Timothy to be a positive example, he told him in 1 Timothy 4.12, to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It is the will of God that men will learn his will both by hearing the gospel and by seeing the evidence of the power of the gospel in the lives of his people. The world will fear, will hear the word of God. They will hear it as his people proclaim the gospel. And the world will see the power of salvation as those who proclaim the name of Christ have been made different live lives that are impossible for the world as they do good works that God has set out for them. You may be wondering, what if my life does not display the light of Christ? What if my life is not salty? What are we supposed to do if we don't measure up to the standard that God has given for everyone who is called by his name? We need to remember that Jesus does not tell his disciples that they should strive really hard and do really hard things and and get all their energy and their will together and make themselves salt and light. No, God, Jesus does not tell us to achieve so that we might be, but that by the very nature of their salvation, the Christian is salt and light. We do not become the children of God because we have worked hard enough to shape our lives in just the right form of what they should look like, that we have made ourselves look the part. We become children of God by his mercy and grace. Just like the water became wine in John 2, we become something that we were not. We become something that we could never have been on our own. Any work that we do on our own strength, any works that we do according to our own will, our own design, will ultimately be burned as chaff. We have no righteousness in ourselves that we might please God. It is only by faith that we're able to please God. It is only by Christ being in us that we are able to please God. It is not our light that we are to shine but rather the light of Christ shining through us that gives glory to the Father. I would ask you, if you are not being salt and light in this world, then in what do you place your confidence before God? It is true that we will sometimes struggle and stumble. It is true that sometimes our light won't be as bright as we want them to be, nor our salt as potent. Yet the warning of our Lord is clear. If we do not by our, by our lives show ourselves to be salt and light, that any claim we have that we make to Christ is folly. Jesus does not set his spirit upon a person, placing his light within them, 
only to hide it away. The work of Jesus in the life of the believer will be evident. God will be glorified by his children. Christians are often told to remember the profession that they made and find assurance for their salvation in that. Sometimes Christians are told to remember the time they first called out to God. Or sometimes they're told, remember that time you said a prayer or you walked down the aisle. Sometimes we even write that date in our Bibles and we are told to point back to that date. That time we wrote that in the Bible when we said a prayer and look to that for your confidence before God. Well, yes, the scripture does make clear that no one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be put to shame. However, when the Bible seeks to give the believer assurance of their salvation, it doesn't direct them to when they said a prayer. It doesn't direct them to when they walked an aisle. It doesn't direct them to when they wrote their name on the page in their Bible. The Bible gives the Christian assurance of their salvation by directing them to look at the evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. So has God saved you? Well, do you see the evidence of God's spirit in your lives? Have you been changed? Have you grown in righteousness? Are you more like Christ today than you were when you first believed? Are you a light shining in the darkness? Are you holding back the decay of evil in this land? When you fail... And yes, Christians do fail. When you fail, does God's kindness cause you to return to him once again in repentance, knowing that he will forgive and cleanse? Do you love the people of God? These are the things that scripture will point you to. To have confidence that you are in Christ is the tangible evidence of what God has done. Is why Christ can say so confidently that his people are the salt of the world because they have been made new. They have been made different. It's why the, the light of the church will be clearly on display because they have been made different. It is the work and the testament of God's changing in the hearts and the lives of men that proves that we are God's children. Do not be satisfied by a lesser confidence that is tied to a momentary decision at some distant point in your life. Praise God that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Praise God that he delights in giving all that is good to those who love him. Praise God that he can take the worst of sinners and turn them into the brightest lights. He can take the least of us to clearly and powerfully display his son on this earth. Praise God that he is faithful and just. That we can know beyond any doubt that he is faithful and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins and trust in his son. 
Praise God that he has not left us in the dark about our standing with him. He has not left us to wander around in agony, wondering if we have somehow done enough, if we have believed well enough. If it was real, we're not left to wonder about those things because he has promised to make it evident in the lives of his children. Let all might see and give glory to our Father in heaven. Praise God that it is all of grace, that out of his abundant loving kindness, he does everything that is required. Praise God, for he is worthy of our praise. He is Worthy. If you would be pleasing to God, then by faith in, faith in the person and the work of his son, cry out to him as that God would do what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. If you do not see the evidence of God's spirit in your life, then call out to him in faith. We have the promises of scripture that no one who calls upon the name of the Lord, no one who is clinging to Christ will be put to shame that there is salvation freely at hand for all who will trust in Christ. God is faithful to work in us and through us for his good pleasure. Follow the son, embrace his reign and his kingdom as salt and light. Go and glorify your Father in heaven in all that you are and in all that you do. Father, I thank you that you have promised to so work in your people that the world will see. Make us faithful to stand up to any kind of conflict, persecution, insults, inconvenience, trials or suffering that might bring. Father, make this church, small as we might be, make this church a shining light in the community. Father, maybe we not try to depend on our own abilities but trust in your power and your spirit to transform us, to make us like Christ. Make us pleasing to you. We trust you in all this for your glory. Amen. Well, as we turn to the approach to the Lord's table, let us remember what we are embracing when we take these elements to ourselves. And we are embracing the light of the world. This is the light, the life that is the light of men. We are recognizing the darkness that we used to dwell in and the sacrifice of the Son of God that was necessary to take us from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. So if you are living by faith, if you are walking in the light, if you are salt on this earth, and you reflect the light of Christ, then this table is for you. 
It is not about our efforts. Our perfection is about what Christ has done in his worthiness. As you embrace the sacrifice of our Savior in this gathering, so embrace him in front of the watching world. As you take his broken body and blood upon yourself as fitting before God, do not be ashamed of him in public. So I offer you to come, receive the bread and the cup, and in just a moment we will take them together. Father, as we prepare to take these elements, we are confessing that it is the sacrifice of Christ that is our confidence, that we have been made right with you, and his righteousness in which he was raised, that we have a righteous life before you. May you bless this means of grace, this sign that you have given us to remember. Build up your people in faith, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not eat again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And may we be encouraged and strengthened by the promise that we will feast with our Lord in the age to come. Father, we give you all glory and honor and praise. Amen.